An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, our special guest is Dr. Ellen Quigley. Ellen is an incredibly influential PhD whose work addresses the ways in which the investment policies and practices of institutional investors affect climate change. She's a senior research associate at Cambridge University's Center for the Study of Existential Risk. More about that later. She's also a special advisor to Cambridge's chief financial officer. In that role, she was instrumental in the university's decision to divest from fossil fuels, even though, as I'm sure we'll hear, she's profoundly skeptical of public equity divestment as a driver of change. Finally, when I was a visiting finance professor at the Judge Business School at Cambridge, she audited my class. Her presence was both flattering and challenging. She cites my work in her prize-winning academic work, but the Mutual Admiration Society goes both ways. I am indebted for her insights that Jim Hawley and I included in our last book. Ellen is incredibly smart, indefatigable, does not suffer fools gladly, and goes where the facts take her. I'm looking forward to a conversation today that goes beyond, far beyond the normal platitudes about investing, risk return profiles, sustainability, and impact. Welcome, Ellen. John, what a lovely introduction. I hope I can even begin to live up to it, but it's a real pleasure to be with you. So what's your origin story? I know you grew up in Saskatchewan, Canada. Did that influence the path you took to become the person you are? Undoubtedly. It's an unusual place to grow up in, in a lot of ways. So it's very community oriented, and that means people have relationships across generations. So I have this experience of thinking about things intergenerationally and in a more interconnected way, I think. And then also, I mean, you can't be from where I'm from without thinking about unfairness because of the tremendous racism against First Nations people in my home province. And so I think being a witness to that kind of unfairness also drives the will to do something about similar unfairnesses throughout the world. What, what was the path from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan to Cambridge? I went to, to, to Harvard for my undergrad, which was an interesting experience as an 18-year-old, um, having spent, I think, a total of two days in the U.S. prior to that in my whole life. And that was actually quite an unpleasant experience overall. It was an elitist, competitive environment uh, without a lot of soul. But there were some wonderful people there who really shaped my, my thinking. And it was towards the end of that experience that I started to get scared about climate change. So I returned home to my hometown in, in Saskatoon and was a community organizer for four years before realizing that I wasn't being very effective. And that's why I went back to university and, and did a master's and then a PhD, um, basically in that, on, on the journey to trying to figure out how I can be more useful. Before we get to your professional endeavors, let's 
let's talk about being young and human. In my research, I came across this really interesting book slash arts project called Gabriel and the Man Who Belly Flopped on the World, written by one young Ellen Quigley in Saskatchewan. Can you tell us about that? Oh, God. Uh, John, the, the, the thoroughness of your research. Uh, embarrassing. Um, so at, at, at that time, I did think I was going to be a writer. And that was a, a, a driving force at the time and probably is, is what got me into Harvard, honestly. So it was pretty, pretty useful in that sense, I suppose. But I still, I still miss the, the literary lens on things, actually. If I'm, if I'm to think about climate change, I think part of what needs to happen is an evolution in thought and social norms that has to involve art. Um, it has to involve connecting with these these other ways of of being and thinking. That sounds very hippie, I'm sure, but it is kind of true. You know, cultural change doesn't just come from solid argumentation. Uh, you know, the factual basis isn't enough, and we know that from social science research. So, um, I think that does still influence the way I think about things. And, you know, my first degree was in English literature. There's a lot of power in the way that we tell stories. And now we are, I think, I mean, you, John, and and, and others, we're all trying to create an, a new narrative, uh, come into a different paradigm, perhaps, in which universal ownership is the the accepted view of how the, how the world works, how the financial system operates. Um, and that is, that's a narrative exercise. So, there's a lot to be said for the role of literature and, and music and so on in this time and space we find ourselves in. Before we get to the actual work, you're known for your work on universal ownership. And your recent paper uh, entitled Universal Ownership in Practice won the Global Research Alliance on Sustainable Finance and Investing Prize. But your PhD wasn't in economics or finance. It was in education, although it was about the education of economists and the differences between American and Canadian economists. Tell us about your thesis and how it informs your opinions today. I think it's had an unexpected impact on the way that I think about these issues. Basically, I did a, a head fake PhD. I wanted to have the excuse to learn about economics um, and finance without having to restart my academic career um, and and also, I think I have a kind of an autodidact approach to a lot of these issues. It's better to be able to follow your your interest, honestly, um, and think about things in less traditional ways. Um, but basically, what that whole process taught me was the incredible power of uh, defaults and assumptions and the things that we're being taught and and learn and 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 that we learn without maybe realizing it. The, the power of norms. So. What I found in my research, um, looking at a, a sample of Canadian economists, was that the older people in my cohort were significantly more likely to hold divergent political views and to be tolerant of different uh, political views and knowledge coming from other disciplines than was true of the youngest uh, cohort in my sample. I think that's probably the opposite of what a lot of people would stereotype of the generations. Um, but the open-mindedness of the older people in the sample seemed to be correlated with the diversity of the economics training that they received in the area, era in which they were 
educated. So they had just an incredible array of different strains of thought within um, economics um, that meant that no one of my respondents had the same education, but also within each person's education, there was a a real diversity of inputs. Um, Whereas that things basically became funneled over time, such that the youngest cohort in my sample had had quite a narrow neoclassical economics education experience. And that meant that the diversity of the views that they held was really constrained. And they had a, a marked difference in terms of their their interest in drawing from knowledge from other disciplines outside of economics. And I think that also has implications in terms of human behavior, because there are some studies to suggest that if someone undergoes that kind of narrow neoclassical economics training in which they're um, either explicitly or implicitly taught that the average human is self-interested and atomistic um, and rational, when humans think that something is a norm, they're more likely to behave in accordance with that norm. So there's kind of a self-reinforcing, uh, there, there's, there's a feedback loop there. So actually, when they look at studies, they actually put people into under, <laughs> under experimental conditions. People who have had that kind of neoclassical economics training tend to behave less cooperatively on average than others in the same experiment. It really helps to illustrate the assumptions that we have within domains that have a lot of political and and social and financial power. So if you if you think that now people who have um, occupied some of the most um, influential posts within our financial system and and government, I mean, economists are, are asked to pronounce upon government policy all the time. And if you think that they may have a a set of assumptions um, or have been inculcated in a certain set of norms that may not be reflective of the general population, that that could be an issue. Agreed. You work at the Center for the Study of Existential Risk. And and I want to repeat the name of that center, the Center for the Study (laughs) of Existential Risk. I remember a frightening walk we shared to a pub on the North Sea, and you regaled me with a list of the threats to life on Earth as we know it. Now, thankfully, we're not going to talk about tectonic plates or monocultures today. And your, but your particular focus is on climate change and more specifically on the interaction between climate, finance, and investing. But much like the mindless invocations of the phrase ESG that mean whatever people want it to, people say climate change almost like a mantra without really thinking about it deeply. You have. So before we get into how various investing efforts do or don't influence climate change, do me a favor and indulge me by walking me through the ways climate change is a systematic, meaning non-diversifiable, risk to investors, including both primary and knock-on impacts that many people haven't considered. As an example, 10 years ago, I was talking to a mutual fund complex about a U.S. Naval War College analysis that said climate change was going to cause water and refugee-related wars in Southeast Asia. So walk us through what climate change really means to investors over time. I love this question, John. This is, yeah, this, this is, this is the meat, right? I think that when we think about climate change, we have, I'm actually just going to adopt something a friend of mine, Zoe Sabitsky, said recently. People think of sea level rise is kind of like a bathtub filling, right? So they think, you know, it's going to be an extra few millimeters. It's not near term enough or 
severe enough in the minds of most people because they're not thinking about these other implications. Sea level rise is going to have all sorts of effects on um, everything from the storm surges that affect coastal communities. And by the way, you know, most humans live not that far from a coast. We have the economic geography of human population puts us at more of a risk than I think people realize. And there are a whole bunch of other direct impacts that relate to yeah, physical risk that I think people undercount. But actually, the part that people miss more often is these, these second-order effects that you were talking about. If you think about the basis on which we, we are able to solve other issues, there's a lot that can be eroded by the chaos that extreme weather events, water shortages, famine, multiple breadbasket failures, mass forced migration. I mean, some of these estimates are that we could end up with up to a billion people being forced to leave their homes by 2050. And 2050 just isn't that far away. And I think a lot of these estimates might be off for reasons we may or may not have time to get into as well. Volcanic eruptions are more likely to, to happen and they're more likely to be more severe um, because of climate change. There are effects on um, zoonotic diseases. So climate change and biodiversity loss both contribute to an increase in pandemic risk. You can, you can go on and on connecting a lot of these systemic risks that we're currently seeing into what people are now terming the polycrisis. It, it's all connected, right? We're, we're ending up with, with health crises that are linked to nature loss and, and climate change and um, antimicrobial resistance and conflict and, yeah, famine and, and food system destructions. It's much more complete and useful to think of these things as interconnected because you can otherwise end up making some pretty big logical errors. Some of the things that you might otherwise do as interventions um, could actually have unintended consequences that are not obvious if you don't have that full system view. And by the way, I think the other piece that people often forget to incorporate into this thinking is around inequality, which has uh, risen in in most markets quite substantially in the past 30, 40 years, but actually through the pandemic period as well. Um, more of the, the income gains went to the top 1% than, than other um, segments of the population. Inequality isn't just, I mean, I think probably many of us have a moral intuition about um, inequality. And if you look at public opinion polls, most people don't like it. But it actually has some, some other effects that may be less obvious. So, you know, if you look at OECD analyses, inequality um, is, is actually not good from a macroeconomic perspective because lower income people have a higher propensity to consume. And so if you actually have low income people, if you have more, more money in the hands of the very rich, there is less cycling of, of capital through the economy. You, you want robust middle class if you want to have a healthy economy. But also there's an erosion of trust in democracy. Um, that has been suggested by a report that came out of Cambridge just before the pandemic. And that then has implications for how we would deal with a whole bunch of other types of systemic risks and, you know, arguably contributes to populism um, and other forms of social discord that just make it hard to solve any problem, including climate change, but also some of these other things. So I think looking at this stuff in the round is really useful. We are in a polycrisis. Externalities have arguably never been greater. They're global and 
affect everything. There's there's no way you can protect your portfolio by by trying to escape or or um, avoid these things. You have to actually mitigate them. Let me read you the dictionary definition of a paradox. Quote, a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true, end quote. With that in mind, here is my Ellen Quigley paradox. Dr. Quigley is both an ESG skeptic and a believer that investors can impact climate change and other systemic risks. Would you like to resolve that paradox for us? I think that the way that I look at, look at it is that, I mean, ESG is a relatively narrow set of practices. I mean, there's obviously some diversity in what people do and call um, ESG, but if you look at the bulk of it, it's usually stock picking in public equity and some, some stewardship um, accounts for a, a smaller share of that total set of, of ESG practices. And if you look at the evidence base for the actual real world impact of the kinds of actions that are taken by people who are practicing ESG today, however well-intentioned they may be, these are not the best tactics to be using. There are tactics available, though, that are underdeployed. And I think there's also the view that if you have a systemic perspective on these issues, you also want to help seed the ground for the legislation that we need, the regulation that we need that is supportive of internalizing externalities. And you have to think about the ways in which stewardship or other universal ownership practices can actually lay the groundwork um, for other actors to play a role in addressing systemic risks as well. So it, it is, it's a very different lens. You could say it's a different paradigm, really, from ESG, which is usually quite narrowly oriented around attempting to protect your portfolio from risks like climate change, um, which I don't even think is going to happen anyway. I mean, I don't think that you can even protect your portfolio from much climate risk given the systemic nature of the issue. But even so, as you've written about, John, most returns come from overall market returns. And, and so if you, if you have a relatively modest number of companies who are externalizing costs to the rest of your portfolio, and, and that is depressing the, the health of the overall economy, that's going to have a much bigger effect on your, your overall portfolio performance, especially in the long term, than any stock picking or tilting you could do. Okay, we're going to play a flash round just in the interest of time on the podcast. You are defining ESG as ESG integration, right? So let's talk about, you You mentioned not stock picking. Why doesn't divestiture and or exclusion make a difference in your opinion? So first, I would quite starkly distinguish between divestment and the divestment movement and quiet ESG exclusions. And we can get into that a bit more if that's if that's useful. But if you're talking about ESG exclusions, those tend to be applied in public equity. So that's mainly secondary market trading of securities. And there just isn't great evidence to suggest that that is having an effect on company level behavior change. The chain there is is too long. First, you have to show that it's actually going to have an impact on share price. Even there, even at that first stage, the evidence isn't very strong. Usually. You know, if a very big investor um, excludes something, there might be a momentary blip in in pricing, but it tends to revert. And even 
fairly depressed share prices, such as in the tobacco industry, um, it, it's hard to connect that even to company level behavior change. So, yeah. Remember, this is a flash route. Okay. So, sorry, 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 sorry. Yes. It's okay. So let me push back on you a little bit. Yes, it has very little influence in secondary market trading, but, you know, Steve Weidenberg would say it's standard setting, that it is people saying what is and what is not within the realm of the acceptable. And therefore, there's a feedback loop to policymakers and government and a whole bunch of other things. Any reaction to that? Sure. If you announce it, if you say, if you're a legitimate institution that has cultural cachet and you announce it and make a big deal out of it, it then it can have a stigmatization effect that actually helps lay the groundwork for legislation because human societies don't tend to legislate things until they're viewed as bad. But if you are a fund manager who's doing a tilt in your portfolio, no one knows why you've done that. What's, what's, what's the impact there? Stewardship and engagement. Your impression? I question whether some of the engagement activity that we see does have the effect that we want. It tends to be oriented around requests for disclosure. So we've basically been asking for disclosure for like 20 years, and we don't even have great disclosure. Um, and a lot of the engagement activity that is most widely published on is, is around shareholder resolutions, which I think are probably somewhat useful in terms of long-term trends, but not very good at actually getting short-term uh, short-term company behavior change. Um, certainly anything beyond disclosure is, is unlikely to occur unless there are a lot of other factors going into a, a shareholder resolution. Okay, so with that as background, you advise the CFO of Cambridge University on what to do about fossil fuels in the university's portfolio, and Cambridge decided to divest from fossil fuel stocks in the secondary market. They did announce it. What were the steps along the path to that decision? What was the university trying to accomplish? And do you think it's worked? So I'll just say, I mean, all I was supposed to do was write a report on the advantages and disadvantages of divestment. And to be honest, I started out with much more skepticism about divestment than I ended up with because I, I am concerned about the lack of proof for additionality in secondary markets. And yeah, that was my view. And then I looked more into the theory of change of divestment. And it does seem like the one thing that everyone can agree on is that legislation is what's needed. And so it turns out that's the play, right? If you have an institution like Cambridge, we have more fame than money. If you have more fame than money, then it's probably better to sell your shares and have that that stigmatization impact um, than it is to retain them, especially because it's very hard to do the kind of engagement. I mean, we, we are a relative, we have a, we have a big endowment by university standards, but we're not a big enough asset owner to have a full stewardship team that can really make change at the company level anyway. So you have to think, how, how do we maximize our impact? It's probably going to be by making a big deal out of that announcement, which we did. And now we do our engagements with our banks and, and fund managers, because those are really good strategic intervention points in the system. And those are institutions that are much easier to transition, if you will, because they don't have as, as much invested in fossil fuels, obviously, as a fossil fuel company would. I make a distinction between traditional corporate, sp corporate specific engagement and systemic engagement around systemic issues. And that seems to be the trend. Peter Roy 
uh, 2.0. Stewardship awards are about multi-stakeholder engagement about things. Two of your compatriots at Cambridge, um, Elroy Dimson and Aswan Karakis, have talked about the fact that coordinated engagement is much more effective than individual engagement. So I'm going to contrad- or, or disagree with you a little bit that Cambridge is too small by joining in coalitions around things. Cambridge adds, as you say, more fame than money, but some amount of money and some amount of fame and is able to get things accomplished. Do you think coordinated engagement around systemic risks is an effective mechanism? I think it can be. I think that we're just starting to see examples of this approach. And frankly, I mean, Cambridge is a part of those, right? We're working with other partners in our engagements with fund managers and banks. But basically, it's not a big team that's doing this. So I actually think the stigmatization exercise with divestment was an important step, honestly. And then I think focusing then on these sectors that have overall less engagement activity around them, where we're kind of more of a value add, seems to be the right approach, right? Because if we were to split our focus across the fossil fuel companies where lots of people are doing the engaging, including Climate Action 100 Plus, we would probably not add as much there. Whereas banks, actually, despite being the major financers of fossil fuel expansion globally, are not part of the Climate Action 100 Plus focus list, for example. So so it was pretty clear to us that we could add, we, we could help fill a gap by looking at these systemically important institutions that we also have, frankly, better levers over. Barclays is Barclays longest term client is the University of Cambridge. It's been over 300 years. They obviously don't want us to step away. That would be a big deal, not because of the money, but because of the headline. And that's where we're able to have more of an impact, arguably, than trying to engage with Shell. So let's play a thought experiment. I recently completed an assignment to help a pension fund think through its statement of investment beliefs with emphasis on systems level investing, which, as you know, takes universal ownership theory a step farther by thinking about these feedback loops between the capital markets and the environmental, social, and financial systems. So here's the thought experiment. You're going to become an all-powerful institutional investor. You're going to be the chief investment officer, a pension funder, perhaps a university endowment. How would you think about fulfilling your fiduciary obligation in a universal order or systems level investing context? So this comes back to Freshfields 2, right? The big report that suggests that not only is it permissible to invest and engage in stewardship activities to protect overall portfolio returns, um, but it might arguably be an obligation that would be the approach that I would take from a fiduciary perspective. I would argue that a universal ownership approach is actually more, more well-suited to satisfying fiduciary duties than ESG is for two reasons. One is it's aimed, again, at protecting the source of a large majority of overall returns. As you talk about, um, John, it's all about that, it's all about that beta. And, and so that fundamentally seems like, you know, you, that should be a, a big part of your fiduciary duty is protecting that majority source of returns. But even from a, an idiosyncratic perspective, um, you're going to end up with more variation in returns 
with exclusions on the public equity side on average. Because if you look, again, this is another Dimson et al. paper, but overall throughout history, uh, the bond market has um, had lower returns than the stock market, which makes sense. They have different purposes. But it means that if you exclude things on the public equity side, you're more likely to deviate from the benchmark in the short term as well. Whereas exclusions on the bond market side, um, so my team is also working on a a bond index that's incorporating much of this thinking. And initially, at least from this initial feasibility stage, we're not finding much of a difference in terms of performance when you exclude companies. And that, again, is affecting primary market capital flows that actually contribute new money to companies that are, say, building new fossil fuel infrastructure that lock in long-term emissions and demand for fossil fuels and reliance on Russia and so on and so forth, right? So if you have exclusions in primary markets, um, that's arguably less likely to have an effect on your returns in the short term. And by doing that in combination with spikier stewardship tactics like voting against the re-election of directors on the public equity side, you are then more likely to protect the overall system by internalizing those externalities, um, using all of the spikiest tools that you have to actually change company behavior. Um, so I would say both, no matter what, which of those two ways you're looking at it, um, universal ownership, that approach is more likely to be um, in line with true fiduciary duty than ESG would. Is your team, I, I always wonder why people who want to affect the cost of cap don't also think about liquidity needs of companies. And I'd love to see someone come up with a commercial paper program. Because if you really want to grab the attention of corporate financial officers, you mess with their daily liquidity needs. So maybe that's the next step after the bond market. Cambridge is a basically a federalist structure. You could think of it this way. And each of the colleges has its own endowment, as you know, John. And that means that each one has its own CIO equivalent and called a bursar. And the bursars and I work together very closely, and I've learned a lot from them. And one of the things that we're looking at right now is their cash holdings. And that will um, include the, you know, that, that implicates the, the short-term liquidity needs of, of, of companies. Um, but it's also meant to be a lever to use with the bank engagements, because um, that's, that's quite a good escalation tactic. So no, I totally agree. And yes, it's on, it's, it's in the plan. <laughs> Let's finish with some short questions and answers now that you've had your practice with the flash round. What's exciting to you right now? What are you passionate about? Asset owners waking up to systemic risks. And you're distinguishing between asset owners, institutional investors like pension funds or government councils or even insurance companies and endowments and foundations as opposed to asset managers like the asset management side of the insurance company or money managers Ab like... BlackRock, Fidelity, State Street, et cetera. Uh, Absolutely. Why do you think there's a difference between the two? <laughs> uh, one has way more conflicts of interest. And that's why we see the difference in behavior between them, the different motivations. The, I mean, I've been interviewing a lot of asset owners as part of my academic work. And, you know, these are people who have, on average, taken a pay cut or could have made more money working in the fund management industry. Um, it's just, a, it's a different mindset. One is trying to grow their asset base and accumulate more clients. The other is trying to protect the long-term security of beneficiaries. It's just a, a totally different way of looking at the world. And I'm really grateful to be working with asset owners in this way. How do you relax? 
long hikes. <laughs> what type of music do you listen to? Do you listen to on the hikes? I do sometimes, although I, I do also like to listen to the bird song and so on. Um, but yeah, sometimes listen to music as well. Um, and I like, yeah, Beirut and Regina Spector and, and artists like that. What are you reading right now? I've actually just returned to Tacky's Revolt, which is a, a book about the transatlantic slave trade um, written by a former professor and, and current friend, Vincent Brown. I think it, it actually helps us to understand the, the history of the spread of ideas and, and norms, actually. Um, so it's obliquely related to this other work, but it's also just a delight to read. Do you ever read fiction? Yes. What type oh, of fiction do you like? A, an enormous variety, but I actually have a recommendation for anyone who's listening to this which is the uh, Broken Earth Trilogy by N.K. Jameson. It's absolutely brilliant. You'll love it. But it also has some things to teach us about climate change in the end, um, although that's not the, the driving narrative force, which is how it's still a really, really good read. If you could be on vacation right now, where would you be? Saskatoon. Last question. If you could magically tell everyone in the world one thing, what would you tell them? It would be what a lot of traditional communities have tried to tell us for a very long time, which is that we, we cannot individually protect ourselves from any of these risks. We are all going down with the ship if we do this wrong. And it is a collective endeavor. There is only so much you can do as an, as an individual. You can't exempt yourselves, yourself from, from the system. There needs to be systemic change that supports whole systems um, and viewing ourselves as from other people and from nature is a folly that has already arguably contributed to the situation that we're in. We need to start thinking in a more interconnected manner. And that's what you definitely learn the more you look into systemic risks. You've been listening to Outside In with John Lukumnik and our special guest, Ellen Quigley. Ellen, thank you so much. Pleasure. You've been listening to Spark Network's Outside In with John Lukonik, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals. Outside In is produced by Connor Ohigasa, John Lukonik executive producer. It is available from Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on social media. Thanks much for listening. Thank you.